Amen. What an encouragement to be able to sing those words today. In all of our days, no matter what those days may be, we can sing those words, bringing comfort, encouragement to us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 this morning. We're continuing our series through Ephesians, where we're getting an incredible picture of gospel doctrine. And then when we get into Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 and 6, we're going to see how that gospel doctrine produces a gospel culture among God's people. I hope it encourages our hearts uh, as we go through this series, and I hope our hearts are encouraged this morning. Let's uh, read again Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, we pray that you do a good work in us, that you would help our heads, our hearts, Take in, receive, believe, trust, and cling to this, your word. So would you attend to the preaching and hearing of your word? We ask to your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a kid, a television show, A-Team, captured my imagination. I wanted to grow up in be part of a small group of ex-Special Force soldiers of fortune who would go around trying to clear their name by helping people suffering under corruption and oppression. Uh, But God had other plans for me. Plans. That's a key word in A-Team. Whenever the A-Team took on some corrupt enterprise, outmanned, outgunned, they were never outplanned, no matter what was happening in that 48-minute episode. At some point in the episode, Hannibal, the leader of the A-team, would puff on his cigar and declare, even when it didn't seem like it, I love it when a plan comes together. The first three chapters of Ephesians is Paul delighting in and declaring how God's plan of redemption has come together. 
While there were times throughout history it didn't seem like it was going to, the pages of Scripture, however, show how this plan unfolds. And the New Testament is the revealing of how this plan came together. It is a mystery revealed, and our passage shows how it is revealed in three profoundly courage-giving ways. My hope is as we wrestle with it, that we will come to grips with living according to the plan revealed in Christ. Because there in Christ we find that the mystery of God's plan is first revealed in Christ. It is revealed in Christ. The mystery of God's plan for all of history is revealed in Christ. It is secondly revealed by the gospel. And thirdly, it is revealed through the church. God has purposed it so that we would be greatly encouraged by this as we consider it because our lives are a part of this incredible story of God revealing his plan. That's right, our lives. Right now, this very moment, what we belong to here at Trinity Baptist Church in Nashville, New Hampshire, we're a part of God's plan of revealing his mysteriously awesome and great purposes by the gospel and in Christ. Let's tackle this together. Let's start first off by wrestling with what is revealed in Christ. And that's just that. The mystery of Christ reveals. It reveals what what Jesus did in his person and his work is revealing the mystery of God's purposes for history. It is the mystery of Christ. Look again at verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 3. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Mystery is sort of a shorthand, if you will, for God's redemptive historical plan. It's not something that we are to solve, but rather it's something that we are to behold. It's revealed. It's not necessarily figured out. And four times in this passage that we read, Paul refers to this mystery. Again, it's not a puzzle to solve. It's rather a story to behold because God is the one revealing the mystery. In fact, that's what scripture is doing. It is revealing the mystery of God's purpose. I want to give you something that you can, it's sort of like a napkin explanation of the Bible. It's a little thing that you can draw on a napkin in a coffee shop with somebody. Um, It's just a simple little image. If you want to go ahead to the next slide. This is the Bible. The story of the Bible right here. And so you have the greater than, less than symbols, and you have a lowercase. I couldn't find the right font to make it look more like a cross, so we have the little loop there at the bottom. Sorry about that. Anyway. But on this screen is the story of the Bible. You start here in this wide panoramic view of creation in Genesis chapter 1. It is before there was anything, there was God. And God, before the beginning, there was God. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see that story. And then as Genesis continues to unfold, it whittles down to a particular person who would become the father of the nations. And as the Old Testament continues to progress, more and more of God's purposes are being revealed. That he would have a people in a place under his kingship. 
And all of that is taking shape and narrowing down until we get to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The centering moment in all of redemptive history. Jesus arrives fulfilling everything to the left of the cross. All of that which is in the Old Testament is leading to and driving to the person and work of Christ. And then from there, flowing out in the rest of the New Testament is obviously the Gospels telling us of the account of Jesus' life on earth and what he accomplished on the cross. And flowing out from that is the history and the birth of the church and Acts. And then we have all of the letters of the New Testament that go to the ends of the earth, bringing that gospel message back out to all of creation. And eventually Christ returns in that last letter that we considered last year in Revelation. And the entire cosmos is redeemed and restored. You can sit in a coffee shop with a napkin and draw that out and explain the story of Scripture is someone that you're talking with. Christ reveals the mystery of God's purpose. Christ fulfills. It. He is the means by which we know what God's purposes are. The mystery is revealed in Christ. In fact, if you look at verse 11, it says it there toward the end of the passage that we considered. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is revealing God's redemptive purposes for history. The plan of God on display in Christ. And as we see here in this letter, this most incredible letter to the Ephesian churches and to us this day, that there is quite a a significance of the mystery revealed in Christ. Quite a significance for us that means something to us in the right now, in our right now moment, in our lives personally, but our lives together as a church family. First is that the significance is that we are united to Christ. That we are united to Christ. All that is Christ's, accomplished by Christ, is now counted for us. And to be in Christ is only through faith in Christ that trusting in his person, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That all of his will be counted for you. And it brings about a tremendous blessing. Let's look back again at verse 6. We're going to look at it in parts. We'll we'll see the whole of it, but we'll we'll consider it in parts. First part is that um, we are now fellow heirs at the very beginning of verse 6. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. Gentile is somebody outside of the Jewish faith who didn't grow up with the promises of God, that all the stuff before the cross on our little graph. Didn't grow up with those stories that are anticipating this coming Messiah, this coming Savior, this coming King to bring about God's redemptive purposes. Outside of that, and we wrestled with that just a little while ago. I think it was either last week or two weeks. Time is weird right now for me, so I'm not entirely sure. It was just last week, right? To be outside of these promises, to be without hope, to be without God. And it refers back to this idea of being a fellow heir, refers back to adoption and inheritance The outsiders are now included in these rich and overwhelming promises of God 
because of Jesus. Outsiders. I'm in a room of outsiders. And God's gracious purpose and plan from before the beginning of time was to bring about a way for outsiders to not be on the outside. And that way is through Christ. God promised it in long in ages past. In fact, he, he verbalized that promise with Abraham in Genesis Chapter 12, verse 3, it says, And you, in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That reaches its fulfillment in Christ. Christ comes about and brings about the blessing that goes out to all the nations through the gospel. It is only in Christ that we are able to experience going from the outside to being a part of God's family. We're fellow heirs. Back to... Uh, Verse 6 again, the second part of that. So not only is it that Gentiles are fellow heirs, but now we see members of the same body. So the outsiders are, are now included into this new gospel community. This new gospel community that God is forming in Christ. You don't have to have a certain sort of criteria other than your brokenness and your neediness and your crying out to Jesus for salvation. That's your criteria now. Whether you're far off or you're near. Whether you did not grow up in a home that that valued Christ. Or if you did, the same call is before you. And the same miracle happens. Your heart turning to Christ through faith. Whether near or far. And now we are now together members of the same body. Outsiders are now included in this new gospel community. It's what it means to be united. In Christ, we're brought into something new that Christ has secured for us. And then, thirdly, back at verse six, the the last phrase of these incredible benefits that come from being united to Christ is that we are now partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Partakers of the promise. Last week we considered that we were, at one point we were strangers and aliens to those things. It was foreign to us. It was outside of us. It was not belonging to us. Not only now are we, do we have it, but we get to partake in it. We are all in on all that God has now brought forth in Christ. We see here that the revealing through in Christ, this mystery revealed in Christ, brings us to, to realize that the significance of being united to Christ. And then secondly, we find that being united to Christ helps us see the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look at verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable Riches of Christ. And Paul has the privilege, we have the privilege of making much of the overwhelming nature and character of God's grace. That the grace that God has for people like us is overwhelming in its nature. And that's been a big emphasis in these first three chapters. Paul has used that sort of language and that imagery to convey the scope and magnitude of God's grace. And our hearts want to believe something different because we know ourselves. 
We know ourselves pretty well, and we know all the dark corridors. And in that, all those dark corridors, we believe that God has enough grace, but maybe not enough grace for that. And so we beat ourselves up or we lock ourselves down and we think we can't approach God because we have so much sin and we don't realize that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. The scope of God's grace is far surpassing than we can even dare to dream or imagine as we were singing. Ephesians 1, verse 18. Paul prayed that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This overwhelming idea that what God has poured out in our lives is is so rich and so overwhelming, we can't actually corral it all in. You can't contain it. There's so much more to God's grace than we could possibly hold in, that we could possibly count. And then again in Ephesians 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. You cannot fathom the the sheer scope of God's grace. You're just sort of swept away in the wave of it. It comes flooding into your life. Do you have any idea what a light year really is. Do you? I looked it up because I didn't really have any idea what a light year was. It is, to, to, a light year spans 5.8 trillion miles. I don't even know how to make sense of that. Do you know how to make sense of 5.8 trillion miles? A single light year is 5.8 trillion miles. I don't, Okay. If you say so, I don't know. Like, how do you get your head around that? Greater than a light year is the scope of God's grace to us. Greater than the crater of our sin is God's grace to us. There's so much volume to God's grace that it floods and fills the crater of our sin and just keeps spilling out into our lives. We have no idea other than it is overwhelming, the unsearchable. You cannot put a fence line around. You can't put a border around God's unsearchable riches and grace to us in Christ. It's greater than all your sin. All that you struggle with. All that guilt, all that shame, all that regret, all that ache and that angst. There's something more powerful than all of that. Something greater in scope and volume than all of it. That is the unsearchable riches of God's grace to us in Christ. This is all part of the plan. This is what God is revealing through Jesus. As if that wasn't enough. That you being united to Christ so that all that is Christ is now yours. You are a co-heir with Christ. That That the overwhelming flood of God's grace to you in Christ is so significant you can't ever measure it. You would never be able to come to the end of it to have any idea of how much is actually there because it's so overwhelming. 
we find a third thing. And that is that we now have access to God through Christ. Verse 12 of our passage. In whom, Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You know what that tells? You know what that says to me? And I hope it says to you. God does not begrudgingly welcome you in. Oh, it's you. Oh, you have the pass. Come on in. He doesn't treat us like that. Boldness and confidence. Doesn't that feel unsettling to say that you have before the God of the entire cosmos? That's what Christ has secured for you. We are welcomed before God, no longer covered in the tethered, tattered rags of our sin. Rather, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ that he gave us. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is all being revealed in Christ. The mystery of God's purposes for history are revealed in Christ. And this is what is revealed. So what do we do with that? Well, I, I, I say this often, but I, I believe it wholeheartedly. We desperately need to rehearse this regularly. Individually and as corporately as a church. We need to rehearse these truths regularly because our hearts can drift toward lesser things or we can believe wrongly about God because of the circumstances of our lives or we can believe wrongly about the nature of his grace because we think we're supposed to bring one to two or three percent of it to the table when we fail to realize that Christ has supplied 100 percent for us. And we start to think wrongly on these things and then feel like the stuff that we do in our lives, the Sunday school class that we go to, the uh, kids class that we help teach, the, the food pantry we'll help serve at, the Sunday morning attendance that we're three out of four a month. You know, we feel pretty good about that. And that's the 75. So yeah, that's in passing grade. You know, so we start doing all of that and we think, okay, I did all this stuff, so God should be good with me. We may not even know that we're thinking that way and operating that way. So we have to rehearse to ourselves these truths because our hearts can drift into all kinds of crazy places. So what do we do? How do we rehearse? Well, we need to regularly study and know the mystery revealed in Christ. Take that little, that little graphic that we gave you and think through the ways in which the Bible is leading up to Christ and then flowing from Christ to the, to the, to the ends of the earth to the restored cosmos. When you open up your Bible to read it, remind yourself where you're at in that whole graph. If you're reading in Joshua, don't lose sight of where you are in the story of the unfolding of God's purposes. Let that lead you then to see how it's anticipating Jesus. Regularly study and know the mystery that is now revealed in Christ. Secondly, regularly draw near to the God who has so drawn near to you. We have been given boldness and, and confidence and access to come to God. 
welcomed. So we have this wonderful opportunity to regularly draw near. Tonight we get to do that corporately. This evening at 6, we are having a church-wide prayer night. I hope to see you here, gathered together to pray, to pray for things together as a church. Hope that you're finding time in your, your days and your weeks to regularly draw near to God with the confidence that He has welcomed you. And maybe you feel guilty about your sin and you, because of that you, you feel like you have to withdraw from God. Get yourself cleaned up and then present yourself back to God. Not so. I was saying, come run to me now. All right, the measurable, unsearchable riches of grace for you. Regularly study and know the mystery revealed in Christ. Regularly draw near to the God who has drawn near to you. And then thirdly, how do we rehearse this regularly? Regularly make much of Christ to others. That includes believers and unbelievers. Regularly make much of Christ to others. Do you realize that we too need to revel over the gospel again and again together as a church family? That in our classes and in our life groups and in our coffee shops and in our living rooms, that we are to rehearse and make much of Jesus to each other because we desperately need that. We need to be in each other's lives in such a way that we're rehearsing these truths because we know in each other's lives we have hearts that can easily drift into other stuff. And also, to, to have the boldness and confidence and the, the joy to make much of Christ to those who are far, who are outsiders, who are far from all of this incredible blessing that we have been considering here in Ephesians 3. That there actually spurs your faith along to make much of Christ to those who are far from Him. We rehearse these things regularly, together, as a church family. Because it's worth it. Because he is worthy. Because what God has revealed in Christ is that amazing. That it would center and shape our lives. Individually and together as a church. This mystery, this plan is unfold, has unfolded and is revealed in Christ. And then it goes out. It's revealed not only in Christ, but then it's revealed by the gospel. And that's what we find secondly here in, in Ephesians 3, that it's revealed by the gospel. And the gospel is just that good news announced. The good news announced. Let's look at verses 7 through 9 again. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. It's good news announced. It's good news of this gospel that we find here the content of chapter 3, 1 through 6, that is Christ is the content of the gospel, of the good news. That this is the gospel of Christ, the good news announced of Jesus. It's not 
good news announced of your works, of you getting your life right, whatever else we want to add, it is good news of Christ. It is both belonging to Christ and it is about Christ. It's both. It's His good news about Him. And we get to announce it. We get to announce that with our lives, with our lips. We get to announce that as a church. We get to announce it. And God has purposed to work through that announcing work to bring others to see the unsearchable riches of Christ. The content is Christ. The content of the gospel is Christ. The nature of the gospel is grace. The content is Christ. The nature of the gospel is grace. God's God's purposes are of God's grace. And Paul understands this ministry of the gospel to be that of grace. Content of the gospel is Christ and the nature of the gospel is grace. The immeasurable worth of the gospel means it's worth sharing. It's worth showing. And as we see even at the end of our passage for Paul, it's even worth suffering the consequences of we go about making much of Christ in our lives. It's worth it because its content is Christ and its nature is grace. And both Christ and grace are so overwhelming, they never run out. Therefore, it is worth it. It's good news announced of this gospel. And this gospel then is to be preached. It's to be preached. Another way of understanding what Paul is saying is it means it's to be proclaimed. It's to be proclaimed. That we are to go about announcing the content of the gospel according to the nature of the gospel. That we are to go about making much of Christ while making clear the nature of God's grace. And as we go about making much of Christ and making clear the nature of God's grace, we want to do so in a way that protects this message at all costs. This is the, the greatest news in all of history. It is immeasurably worth all of our efforts and, and joy and worship and wonder. And it is to be protected at all costs. All the costs that come from outside and from inside. But this is the heart of the Christian faith. This is the heart of the Bible. This is the heart of God's purposes. We're to protect it at all costs. So that we can be a people and a church to bring to light to everyone. Just as we see here with Paul. Look again at verse 9. So he is proclaiming the gospel And in so doing, we see an additional description of what's happening. It is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That the ministry of our lives and the ministry of the church that we are all committed together to be a part of is to point people to Jesus. Why? Because in Jesus, God has revealed his purposes. And as we point people to Jesus, we are pointing them with this Good news announcement that his life, his death, and his resurrection fulfill all of God's purposes and secure for us the salvation we can never gain on our own. This is it. And as we do it, we're, we're shining light 
in a dark world. We're giving light. We're helping people to come to understand in greater measure who God is and what God's really all about. How then do we take this in? And how do we wrestle with this in our hearts and apply it into our lives? Well, first of all, we need to understand that God has purposed and planned that this gospel is preached and proclaimed. That's his purpose. God has purposed this for our lives, for our church. That means we cannot lose sight of the primacy of the gospel proclamation of the church or the centrality of the gospel to our lives. The gospel is not a good thing among many equally good things the church can be about. Rather, it's the main thing that makes all the other good things good. The most important thing that Nashua, New Hampshire and its surrounding region needs is the churches to make much of Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel in their ministry and in their lives. There is nothing more meaningful that the church can do in this region than to make much of Christ by the gospel. Together in our worship, together in our community, together on mission. Because this is God's purposes for history. And the more our lives are tethered to that, the more our church is tethered to that, there's some good things that overflow from it. Gospel, first of all, gospel centrality brings about a greater assurance to our hearts. It assures our hearts. Why? Because we're focusing on the character of God and His ways and His purposes and how Christ has brought it to bear in our lives. So rather than our circumstances, it's, it's directing our thoughts, our wonder, our worship to the character of God and how it is accomplished through Christ. His purposes are accomplished through Christ. So it assures our hearts. It encourages our faith. God purposed before time. He brought it about in time and space. Over the course of centuries, he brought about his purposes. Nothing thwarted them. Nothing could stop them. In fact, what looked like defeat was God actually bringing about his victory at the cross. So if anything, as we see the way that God is over all things and at work accomplishing his good purposes through the church, it actually brings about an encouragement to our faith. It strengthens our faith. To continue on, no matter the circumstances of the culture around us. That's inconsequential. It doesn't really matter. It impacts how we go about what tangible ways that we can communicate the gospel to our culture. But it doesn't change what we're called to do. Make much of Christ. So we find ourselves being encouraged. And then the more we are centered and tethered to this, the more our church, our lives are equipped to live according to plan. This is God's plan. He has revealed it in Christ and by the gospel, and it shapes us. So may we be a church that lives according to plan. And that leads us then, thirdly, to see how he's revealed it through the church. He's revealed it through the church, revealed it in Christ, revealed it by the gospel, 
and reveals it through the church. We find that the church is a gospel-revealing community. Look again at verses 10 through 13. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. There were circumstances that were hard for Paul, and it was impacting the Ephesian churches. And he's saying, don't lose heart, because something greater is at work here through you. There's something bigger than these circumstances, whatever they might be, whatever we might face. Don't lose heart. Because, as revealed through the church, a gospel-revealing community does something important, shows off God. God has planned and purpose to show off through the church. That's right, through the church. Imperfect and broken and wayward as the church broadly can be. God decides to show off through the church. Again, looking back at verse 10, the beginning part, so that through the church... Through the church, God is doing something. And that can refer to both aspects of the church. First, the church universal. That just simply means all believers from all places and all times. God's showing off. I am rescuing sinners who are dead in their sin. I'm making them alive in in Christ and together with him. I'm doing this profound work that not even all of these authorities and, and dominions and powers and principalities and things that we can't even see, they can't stop me. I'm showing off through the church. But also, not just the church universal, all believers from all places and all times, but the local church. Trinity. God is showing off through Trinity. Specific people in specific time in a specific place. God showing off His grace in our actual lives. Redeemed. Restored. Made right with Him. Growing. Slowly but surely. He's showing off in this world. His grace is greater than all our sin. Are the meaningful commitment of a varied people redeemed by Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel in the local church shows off God. You are a part of God showing off in this world. You may not feel like your life has much significance or importance, but I want to say to you, here it is. In the Bible, here it is. God is showing off His grace through your life. You're belonging to this church. He's showing off. And what is he showing off? Well, we see he's showing off his manifold wisdom. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Manifold means many-sided, multifaceted, many-splendor. In Paul's day, it was a word that was often used to describe an intricately embroidered pattern of many colors, usually on a robe or some sort of outerwear of somebody incredibly wealthy. The church is described in this way. It is displaying God's many-sided, multifaceted, many-splendored pattern of His grace. And it was His wisdom God planned and accomplished and applied redemption in such a way that it rescues individuals from all kinds of walks of life and creates a new community And this new community shows off the nature and character of God's grace. You are part of an 
intricately embroidered pattern of God's grace. You're woven into it. Your life, this church, conveys the hues of God's grace to our darkened world. You're part of something meaningful. You believe that. Your life has that level of significance to God. Not, not only does he show off in this world, but as we see in the last part of verse 10, he shows off before things we can't see. Before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church reveals God's powerful grace before all things, seen or unseen. This is the second time this kind of grouping is mentioned. The first time was in verse 21 of chapter 1, in which we see that Jesus is above this grouping of powers and rulers and authorities and so forth. In verse 21 of, of chapter 1, it says, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And then the second time is our verse, where we see the church is being presented to show off God's power and grace before these you know, rules and authorities and powers and, and dominions in the heavenly places. And then the third time we come across it is that then we find that believers are equipped to wrestle with them. In Ephesians six twelve, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We're part of that. Jesus is above it, the church is showing off in it, and you are equipped to face it. Every time the gospel of Christ is proclaimed, every time someone turns to Jesus through faith, every time a church pursues unity, or helps encourage, or helps equip each other to make disciples, and so many more things we could say, it is showing off God the things that we cannot see. That's meaningful. Now, we face some obstacles to this. One of those obstacles is that the preacher got too long-winded on things. Thank you. I received that. Uh -uh. <laughs> I see that hand. Um, two obstacles that I just want to leave us wrestling with. A church can get off of center faces obstacles to showing off God when a church pursues more of the sames. More of the sames. A church can go about customizing the ministry of its church to specific preferences or shared likes or squarely around life stages rather than allowing the diversity of people responding to the gospel to feel like they have a place to belong. When we're too about the more of the sames, there's so much loss and left on the outside. And that runs counter to the very work of God's grace in the gospel, reaching all the way out to the outsiders, to us. Socio or economic or political affinities dictating a community will only produce more and more and more of the same. Now, the gospel is narrow in terms of its content, but it is abundantly broad in terms of its audience. A church should reflect its broader community and culture 
around it. This should lead us to look at our surroundings with aspirations to see people from all walks of life that make up the Nashville region come to Christ, hear the gospel, and belong to our church. That we remove unnecessary roadblocks from those who are on the far outside to hear and receive and believe and belong. More of the sames can be debilitating to a church. Second obstacle for a church is consumerism. What do I get from this rather than what are we a part of in this thing called the church? It's looking at church transactionally rather than relationally. Very briefly, let me give you the tale of two coffee shops. I have two coffee shops in town that I frequent. One is locally owned, operated. I know other people that work there. I actually know a lot of the other customers that sit around there too. I learn about them losing their dog or their mom struggling with dementia or they're starting up a new thing of schooling. They lost this boyfriend or that, whatever, you know. You get to hear and be a part of their lives, and they know that I'm the preacher and the pastor, and they're cool with that. The other coffee shop is filled with just people angry. Angry that their coffee isn't ready. Angry that their mobile order is one order behind. They're busy, 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 going, 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 going. It's loud, and I don't know anybody there. A church that is shaped after consumeristic thoughts are going to be like that second coffee shop. Nobody's really going to know you. Busy, busy, busy. Get, get, get. Where's mine, mine, mine? Instead, let's be that mom and pop coffee shop. People know our names. Know we lost a dog. Our mom has dementia. Or this boyfriend or that girlfriend's no longer. Know the things of our lives and... and We know them and they know us. Consumerism will detract, detract from being centered to the gospel, detract from the wonderful privilege that we have to show off God. Lastly, not only is there an obstacle if we pursue more of the sames, or if there's a consumeristic mindset, time-poor people face extra obstacles being a part of what God is showing off through the church. Time-poor. An overall broad middle-class culture has many amenities, many good things, except for time. We have so many competing pressures fighting over the same thing, all consumed with getting our time. You have a variety of responsibilities that you face each week. They take up your days. They take up your evenings. They take up your mornings. They take up your weekends. They take up your energies. Time poor people get tired. They get cooked, inconsistent, worn out, and then can turn around and sort of pull back from other things in their life, oftentimes including the church. I don't know the answers to all of that. Just know that that's an obstacle. And maybe a way to think about that is this way. Maybe we need to do different things in our lives to be more part of what God is doing through the church. Or maybe we need to do things differently to live according 
to the plan God has called us. I don't, I can't answer that for you. How do you spend your time? What do you commit to? Maybe you need to do things differently, or maybe you need to do different things. I hope that you are encouraged by the privilege of being a part of the local church, being a part of what God is showing off to this world, to things that we can see and not see. I hope that you're encouraged to know that God has revealed through the, by the gospel his glorious grace for you. I hope that you're encouraged to see that God has revealed in Christ his purposes for all of time and for your lives. And I hope that encouragement brings you to the place to where you want to say, yeah, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of this in a profound way. If that's wrestling around in your heart, please reach out to me and reach out to the elders. Maybe somebody you came with or somebody you know is a part of this church family. Let's explore together how we might be able to do that, to be a part of what God is showing off. What a profound privilege to be a part of something so grand, so glorious, so grace-filled, so much about Christ. May that be so for our church in increasing ways. Right now and for however many years we are together, for however many years Trinity is in this place, may it be until the Lord returns. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the way that you care for us. And we ask that you would bless our day as we think through your purposes for our lives, for our church, as we think through the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of Christ. God, I pray that it would cause our hearts to be filled with wonder and worship and that our lives would be strengthened and equipped to live for you and your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In Romans 5, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Please stand as we rejoice together.